0: We are in part five today of a series that we're calling When the Fastened Seatbelt Sign Comes On. And we've said that we expect the seatbelt sign to come on in a passenger jet when we're taking off. It's not a big deal to us. Uh, We don't mind when the light comes on when we're getting ready to land. We expect that. It means we're almost to our destination and we're almost to our connection or whatever. It's the mid-flight turbulence that gives us trouble. How many of you uh, enjoy flying, like commercial flight? Okay, how many of you tolerate commercial flight? How many of you, okay, you tolerate it, okay. How many of you look forward to the mid-flight turbulence because that's the only exciting thing that happens? Okay, good. So that's what I thought. It's the mid-flight turbulence that gives us uh, pause, gives us trouble. So what we're talking about in this series is that the fastened seatbelt sign in our lives just has a way of coming on over and over again, has a way of popping up in, uh, in our lives, and the turbulence can come from so many different places. So we've been talking about uh, what to do in the midst of uncertainty. It's difficult to be certain about God in times of uncertainty. It's difficult to know where you stand with God in times of uncertainty. When things are good, it's easy to follow God because we're just like, oh, look at that thing right there. Isn't God good? I mean, look at that thing. Isn't God good? I'm so happy. Isn't God good? And everybody's healthy. Isn't God good? I've got a great job. Isn't God good? Do you see how God worked that deal out for me? God arranged it for me to meet him. Or do you see how he arranged it for her to get my number? Isn't God good? Like there's God, there's God, there's God, there's God. God's everywhere. Isn't he good? God's good all the time. But then things go bad. And we're like, where's God? Like, where is he now? God? Where are you? And it's hard to follow. In uncertain times, because God can be so quiet, and when he's quiet, he seems inactive, and he doesn't seem to answer prayer, and he seems so distant. And yet, if you're here today and you're uh, a Christian, or maybe you're not a Christian, but you're trying to figure out what exactly you believe about God... You're trying to get some things together right now. Maybe you're facing some uncertain times and you're thinking, yeah, it's really difficult to follow God in uncertain times. I can identify with that. So you pray and you pray and you pray and at the end of your prayers and you're like, you're like so what do you think, God? Can we make this happen? You know, what are you going to do about that? Should I give you till like, I don't know, Thursday? Or tell you what, next week. I'll give you till next week, God. So God, talk to me. like Show me. like Let me know that you heard me and you're going to work on this for me that'd be great. But you pray and you pray and you pray and and nothing happens and things continue to get more and more uncertain. How do you follow God in the middle of that? Like maybe there's an uncertainty with your future. Maybe it's a job thing. Maybe it's a career thing, a school thing that something's not working out. Maybe you're 30 something and you don't want to spend the rest of your life doing the job you're doing or you don't want to spend the rest of your life with the kinds of relationships that you have. You know, like if it's going to be like this the rest of my life, I'm not interested. Something's got to happen. I look into the future and I don't know what's going to happen. And I keep praying that he'll change or she'll change or I'll get that interview or that I'll keep this job or my financial situation will turn around. Like I don't see anything happening and I want to believe God's with me. But it's a lot easier to follow God and to believe God and to uh, be faithful to God when things are good, like when good things are happening. Because we can look around like there's God, there's God, there's God, there's God. Then you pick up the Bible, and it's not very helpful sometimes because it seems like every time the people in the Bible got into uncertain times, things like, I don't know, angels appeared out of nowhere, right? Voices, clouds leading them, you know, the earth opens up and swallows the difficult people in their life, or they just fall over dead, and the armies always won, you know? And you read this stuff, and you're like, that's not helpful to me because that kind of stuff doesn't happen in my life. Plus, in the Bible, it's like there's a problem on Monday, like a tragedy on Monday, and by Friday afternoon, God had cleared it all out like it's an episode of a full house or something, and everything all just is nice and neatly packaged. And in your life and in my life, there's just this uncertainty, like relationally and financially and career and professionally and educationally and nationally and all this kind of stuff is just kind of out there. How do you follow God in times of uncertainty? How can you be certain about God when the things around you are uncertain, we've said that fortunately in the Bible, um, so much of it was written in uncertain times and around uncertain circumstances. Most of the stories that we love and the characters that we love, we, it's not because we love them not because uh, they were they were normal days, right? But because there were uncertain times and God showed up. And as we've looked in the pages of Scripture so far in this series, we've looked at some different stories and different teaching, and we've discovered there are some things we, we need to do in the face of uncertainty. So just by way of review, first we said we need to pray. We said that where, whenever and wherever there's uncertainty, there's always fear, and in that fear resides a desire, a longing. And somewhere packed in that fear is a longing. And here's what we know, that if we can ever get to that and identify that, then if we can ever hand that off to our Heavenly Father, we will hear Him say, I can handle that. Like, I can take care of that. And in looking at a passage from Philippians 4, we concluded that what God has to offer in our turbulence, in our uncertainty, is a peace that precedes anything being peaceful. The second word was the word remember. During times of uncertainty, we need to remember God's faithfulness in the past. Because his faithfulness in the past brings a ray of hope into our future. And we said that in our times of uncertainty, often when we're trying to figure things out on our own, trying to come up with our own explanations for what's going on, like our own solutions. And for a lot of us, that involves like running away from God, even for just a little while while we sort things out. That God has this uncanny way of coming along and asking, what are you doing here? Like, in light of everything I've done for you, in light of my faithfulness in their past, what are you doing here? Then, third, we said that we need to seek. We looked at a familiar passage in Matthew 6 where Jesus looks at a crowd of people and he says, Don't worry. We said that there is a grace that is available to us when we make this exchange that Jesus challenges us to make in this passage in Matthew 6. We talked about what it means to seek God's kingdom, to seek it first, to prioritize our lives around the values of His kingdom. And we pose this question that we can ask of ourselves, that we can ask the Holy Spirit, to illuminate for us that in the middle of what's going on around me, in the middle of my turbulence, in the middle of the uncertainty around me, is there a way through my words, through my actions, to further your kingdom? Then last time we said that to thrive in the midst of uncertainty, it's critical that we be connected. And We looked at a passage in Ecclesiastes 4 where Solomon said, two are better than one. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And we said that when we feel overwhelmed, we respond to overwhelming circumstances of life better if there's someone there to walk with us through those circumstances. We talked about the quality of deep connection, we call it community, that actually makes it preventive. That deep, significant community is preventive. That when you're deeply connected with other followers of Jesus, there are some things you will never have to face. There are some things you may never have to recover from. So we said that we need to understand and accept that. Number one, we need some structure around our connection. We don't typically engage in the practices that lead to community on our own. We just don't. We get distracted and we get involved in all kinds of other things. We don't tend to do this organically. So we need a little structure. And then number two, we said that community takes time and intentionality. And I hope, I hope that led to some conversations in your household in the last week about the role of community in your lives, in your marriage, in your family, in your kids' lives. So if we're going to thrive in the face of, of, of uncertainty and the turbulence that life throws at us, uh, we've got to pray, we've got to remember, we've got to seek, we've got to be connected. And today, as we continue the series, I want to talk about a fifth word, and it's follow. So in uncertain times, not only do we pray, not only do we remember, not only do we seek, not only do we need to be connected, but we need to learn to place our confidence in God and follow Him. So this is so very simple, um, but very difficult. All right, because it's so much easier to follow God and to be faithful to God when times are good, when things seem certain. Like, so how do you follow God and how do you obey God? How do you live out kingdom values in uncertain times? I'll tell you why this is so important. I love the story that we're gonna look at today, and I'll be honest with you, I've probably taught from this story more than any other story in the Bible. The reason I think the reason I love this Old Testament story is that there are no miracles. I mean, I like the stories about miracles. Those are cool. But I kind of sometimes feel a little like they cheated a little bit, right? Because, I mean, like if I could have that stuff happen in my life, you know, if I could like say a word and lightning comes down and water comes out of a rock and sick people around me are healed and there are angels in the sky and talking donkeys and stuff, I mean, that would be so cool. It would be nice. But that would definitely make the uncertain times a little bit easier. But I love this story because God doesn't say anything. He doesn't seem to be doing anything. And it's a reminder to me that in uncertain times, there is a way to follow God. And the reason this is important is this. It's in uncertainty that God gets his greatest mileage in our lives. God may very well do more in your life and more in my life in times of uncertainty than any other time so in order to follow god in uncertain times we need to be confident not in ourselves not in our surroundings not in our circumstances not in our ability to figure things out and come up with a plan and like i i don't know about you but i tend to trust in my own abilities in my own ability to think things through, to do my research, come up with a strategy to address my circumstances. We tend to trust in our 401ks, and we trust in our education and that diploma, and we trust you know, that one of these days we're going to win the megabucks. And we put our trust and our confidence in all these things, and in uncertain times, all these props just get kicked out, or at least enough of them to where suddenly we're very dependent and we're very conscious of the fact that, God, we need you. And God gets a lot of mileage out of those times. And He not only works in us, but oftentimes it's in uncertainty that God uh, gets His most mileage through us in terms of what He wants to do in the world through us. And oftentimes it's in the context of uncertainty that God does unbelievable things. So it's important that we learn to follow in times of uncertainty. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, I want you to turn with me to the book of Genesis if you don't have a Bible this morning you're not sitting somewhere where you can see the print not to worry the text is going to be on the screen for you for the most part I'm going to try to lead Jen through this I've like given her a lot to follow. Genesis 37 is the story of Joseph. Joseph was an interesting character one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. Joseph's father had several wives and just like uh some parents play favorites with their children sometimes. Joseph's father played favorites with his wives. Wouldn't that be interesting? So he had a favorite wife, and um, this favorite wife had a couple children. This is weird. The word's even coming out of my mouth. This sounds weird. And he loved the children of his favorite wife more than he did his other children, and his other children knew that. Of course they did. And I know this sounds like an episode of Dr. Phil, but this is where we, this is where we pick up the story. So here's the deal. You know this. Joseph... Uh, had a coat that his father had made for him. We know it as the coat of, right, probably had nothing to do with color. But anyway, his brothers just resented this whole deal terribly. So one day, his dad says, hey, Joseph, I want you to go check on your brothers. Uh, Go down to Shechem, check on your brothers, come back, tell me how they're doing. So Joseph heads out, and this is where we're going to pick up the story. Genesis 37, verse 18 says, But they, his brothers, saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Now, if you think you have dysfunction, like if you think you have, you have dysfunction in your family, you're between your brothers and sisters, let's say, like it's only been a few weeks since you had that family get-together thing over the holidays, right? Yeah, and you're just now recovering. And, you know, but remember when you were standing at the kitchen sink helping your mom with the dishes or whatever, and remember when you heard your sister plotting to kill you? Remember that? No, probably not. These, these guys are plotting to kill their brother. Verse 19. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, <laughs> let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So there's a backstory there, obviously, but they see Joseph coming and they decide to kill him. And they grab him and throw him into a cistern. So here's a guy who hasn't done anything wrong. And they throw him into the cistern. They have a little argument. Well, should we kill him? I thought we were going to kill him and throw him in the cistern. You just threw him in the cistern. What are we going to do? Are we Are going to kill him? We're going to, I know. Let's sell him. That's so much better. No, kill him. Sell him? Kill him. Sell him. What do we do? I don't know. I say kill him. All in favor? No, I say sell him. So somehow, I don't know how this worked out. I can just imagine this family meeting, but they just sell him. We'll just sell him. And tell dad that he was killed by this ferocious beast. So they sell Joseph to this group of Ishmaelites who are headed to Egypt. So Joseph starts his day. He's the favored son. Life is good. He's got the sweet coat. I'm gonna, you know, grow up, I'm gonna inherit all this stuff. Life is great. And the next thing he knows, he's in this pit. Maybe he's thinking this is another prank or something. Maybe, but before he knows it, he's tied up wrist to wrist, walking behind a camel, heading to Egypt. This just got real. So they get to Egypt and he's auctioned off as a slave. So this is a guy who grew up in a home with servants, and now suddenly he is one. And by the way, he's about 17 years old. just so happens that the captain of Pharaoh's army, Potiphar, he buys him. And that's where the story takes an interesting twist. Let's jump ahead to chapter 39, and let's read a few verses together because there's a surprise here. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Check this out, verse two. "The Lord was with Joseph. I don't know, time out. Time, I mean what? If the Lord had been with Joseph, he wouldn't have been sold as a slave in the first place. I think being sold as a slave is an indication that God is not with you. It's a sign that God has forgotten you. If the Lord had been with Joseph, when his brothers tried to lay their hands on him to throw him into the pit, they, they would have, I don't know, been struck dead on the spot or fallen into the pit themselves. Or voice would have come from the sky like, don't touch him, I'm with him. Because That's more like it, I think, when you read the Lord was with him. And so here's the irony and here's the tension. Here's where we live. Suddenly, here's a guy who's a slave who just a few days ago was a favored son in a successful family. And suddenly he's a slave in a foreign country, and the Scripture says, oh, yeah, the Lord was with Joseph. But if you'd asked Joseph about that, he may have questioned that, don't you think? Wouldn't you? Because it's easy to see God when things are good. Oh, there he is. Oh, there he is. Oh, there he is. But when things turn, when life becomes uncertain, it's hard to see God. And if someone were to ask in those uncertain times, hey, is God with you? Well, it's like, well, I think he used to be with me because life was great, but I don't know anymore. The story goes on, verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of... Let's just stop there. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And you're like, time out, again, God? Like, you mean the God who has allowed you, like your loving brothers to throw you into a cistern? That the God you're talking about? You mean the God that allowed them to go to your father and say, we don't know how it happened, Dad, but your favorite son, Joseph, was tragically killed. And now your father is like hundreds of miles away mourning your death. Are you talking about the God that allowed that to happen? Is this the same God that you don't want to disappoint, Joseph? Is this the same God that allowed you to be sold to Potiphar? Is this the same God, Mr. 17-year-old, who's allowing you to face unbelievable temptation and you say no because you want to be faithful to this God? And Joseph says, I couldn't do this and sin against God. I'm going to remain faithful to God. The story goes on and she persists and she continues to try to draw him into this thing. And he does the right thing. Verse 10 says, and and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. And one day uh, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. So suddenly she turned into sand and the wind came and blew her underneath the door and she was never seen or heard from again because the Lord was with Joseph. You don't remember that part of the story? That's what's supposed to happen, isn't it? When the Lord is with you. When you're under all this pressure and all this temptation and you choose to do the right thing over and over, God's supposed to show up in some miraculous, unexpected, tangible way. Doesn't he kind of owe you that, you know, for all you've done for him? Do you remember how Joseph is rewarded? Verse 12, "Uh, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he'd left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to him, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. So he came come up with this story really fast. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard my scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. <laughs> and she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And you, can just, you can just picture it. She's sitting on the step crying when Potiphar comes home. She's quite an actor, you can tell. And when she told him the story that the Hebrew slave that you brought into our house, he tried to assault me. And as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and took off running out of the house. Verse 19, when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Well, I can imagine. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And Joseph's thinking, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. I did the right thing. God, Hello. I should get an award. I think, like, I'm doing a miracle here. I think it's even stranger. Verse 20. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. And I'm thinking, I don't want the Lord to be with me in the prison. I don't want to be in the prison. Oh, good, God is with me in the prison. I feel so much better. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness. Like, What does that mean he showed him kindness? I mean, he's been good. He's been righteous. He's done the right thing, and now he's in prison. You're going to show him kindness in prison? Show him kindness by getting him out of prison. That's kindness. Look at this. And granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Just use your imagination for a minute. I posed this scenario to you before in telling this story, but just picture in your mind what you think maybe a prison warden might have looked like 4,000 years ago. God granted him favor in the eyes of the warden. It's like, big deal. Now I have a new friend. It's like me and the tattooed, pierced, hooded, probably disfigured prison warden. Things are really looking up in my life. Hey, God, I don't deserve this. I'm innocent. God, hello, where are you? Do something. Remember how the story goes? Eventually, the prison warden kind of turns some things over to Joseph because he's just a natural leader. Every environment he's in, he takes on leadership responsibilities. Meanwhile, upstairs, the the pharaoh gets mad at his butler, and his wine taster, and he gets mad at his baker, and he throws them in prison. I just can't imagine what they did, but he throws them in prison, and they run into Joseph there. And while they're in prison, they have these dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams. You remember the story if you've... uh, Spending time in Sunday school, right? And first he interprets the dream for the wine uh, taster, the cupbearer. Turns out that according to this dream, the cupbearer is going to be restored to his position in the palace. Chapter 40, verse 8. Joseph said to him, Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So he just keeps continuing to give credit to God. He interprets this dream. We drop down to verse 14. When all goes well with you, like, like, finally, there's a plan. Like, he's thinking, finally, like, when God finally shows himself, when finally I get a break, like, this guy's going to be restored and go to Pharaoh, and if you'll just say to Pharaoh... Hey, hey, Pharaoh, there's a guy in your prison that predicted that you would let me out and restore me to my position in the palace. Then Pharaoh's gonna find out about me and finally, God, finally, I see it. I see your plan. I see it now. This is brilliant. I've doubted you, but it's all coming together for me. There is a God after all. So sure enough, time goes by and the cupbearer to the king is restored to his position. Verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however... (laughs) did not remember joseph what's that mean it means he forgot him do you ever feel forgotten do you ever feel like god just forgot about you everything's going great for everybody around you everybody else got the break you finally see a crack in the door and you're like god if you'll just give me that one interview if she'll just give me one chance if he'll just go to the counselor one time god i can see how the whole thing can come together Lord, I've got a plan, and, I, and I, I think if you get in on my plan, I think this is going to work out. But then it doesn't work out, and you feel forgotten. The Bible says two more years passed. At this point, he's about 30 years old. So from 17 to 30, no miracles, no visibly answered prayers, no intervention, no voices from God, a life full of all kinds of uncertainty, for all he knows, he's going to spend the rest of his life in an Egyptian dungeon. And the whole time, even though God was so silent, he was not still. Even though he seemed, there seemed to be no activity, God was not inactive. Because God was working behind the scenes to accomplish something so unbelievable that in Joseph's lifetime, I don't think he ever really understood the unbelievable significance of these years. He never understood the significance of God's silence, but God was not still even though he was silent. God was not inactive, even though it appeared that he was doing nothing. And the whole time, God was at work behind the scenes. God was, in fact, with Joseph. Before I finish the story, I, kinda, I just want to, I, I got I to tell you this because I don't want to wait till the end. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, here's what God says to you. He says, I am with you. Jesus put it this way, I am with you always. He's echoing the promise of God to the Israelites in Deuteronomy and Joshua, where God said, I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And the reason Jesus repeated this promise and extended it to us is that he knew there would be times where we would look around us and draw the conclusion that I've been left alone, I've been forsaken. He knew there would be times when there would be no evidence of his presence. He knew there would be times there'd be no visible evidence of God's concern. He knew there would be times when we would look around and we would look and look and look and say, God, where are you? Because if there weren't going to be those times, there would be no need for Jesus to remind us, I am with you always. But there will be times when you feel forgotten. There'll be times when you feel forsaken. But Jesus says, don't despair because I am with you. So finally, a couple of years go by in Joseph's story, chapter 41, it says, When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He had this dream that no one could interpret. And apparently, this was a common thing the interpretation of dreams. And finally, his cupbearer he goes, oh, Pharaoh, you are not going to believe this. I hate to even bring this up because I know how you respond to things when we have a little tiff. But how do you you remember that thing we had a couple years ago? I hate to bring it up because like anyway, we got through that. We're all good now, Pharaoh, remember? But while I was in this in your dungeon, which was lovely, by the way, there was a fellow in there and he interpreted one of my dreams and everything he predicted came true. And Pharaoh's like, get him. So they shaved him and cleaned him up and got some fresh clothes on him. And he said goodbye to his good friend, the prison warden. And they brought him to Pharaoh. And he's standing in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, Would you interpret this dream for me? Verse 16. <laughs> Joseph says, I cannot do it. It's like you're blowing it, Joseph. I cannot do it, Joseph said to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And you're like, Okay, 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 wait. Same God? Same God. Same God who let your brother, same God. Same God who let you be sold and, yet same God. Same God who let that whole deal with Potiphar's what? Yep, same God. The same God who let the cupbearer forget that you even, yep, same God. The same God who has given you no evidence of concern or love for you since the day you arrived in Egypt, that God? Yep, same God. So he interprets the dream. And when he does, Pharaoh does what you would expect him to do. Verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You will be in charge in my palace, of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He goes from inmate to in charge in like an hour. This is great. There is no way to have like a three, five, ten year plan for this kind of thing. This is totally a God thing. Joseph hasn't planned this. This isn't about skill. This isn't about strategy. This isn't about talent. This isn't about hard work. This is entirely about God, listen, who'd been at work the whole time, perfectly positioning him for something that he knew nothing about. And then one afternoon, he says goodbye to the jailer, moves out of prison, moves into Pharaoh's house, becomes the number two guy in Egypt, which kind of means he's the number two guy in the whole world because God had been with Joseph the whole time. And there's no evidence of God's favor until that moment. And although he had been silent, he had not been still. You know how the story ends. It's amazing. Joseph comes up with this strategic plan because he is brilliant. And this plan that if Pharaoh follows it at the end of the plan, not only will these people be saved from this coming famine, but then Pharaoh owns everything in Egypt. I'm not saying it was a good plan. It was just a brilliant plan. So Pharaoh says, yeah, I like this plan, implement it. And he implements it, and at the end, everybody gives everything they have to Pharaoh. And he isn't just the king. Now he like, owns like, everything. And this famine that Joseph predicted that he saw in the dream is all over the world. And so Joseph's family is about to starve to death. So Jacob, Joseph's father, sends his brothers to Egypt to buy food. And guess who they have to buy it from? I love these twists and turns. Can you imagine that moment when he recognizes them and reveals his identity to them? I mean, not everybody had to come up and show up in front of Joseph. But word got back. Like, ah, bring them to me. I'm going I'm to work this transaction with them directly. So chapter 45, verse 4. You've got to read the whole story, really. We're skimming through it. You've got to read the whole story because there are so many twists and turns. Verse 4 of chapter 45 says, "Do not." He's talking to his brothers. Do not be distressed. <laughs> it's easy for you to say. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. You thought you did it. I thought you did it. Now we know God did it. Verse 7. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance so that it was not you who sent me here. God. Do you know what Joseph was able to do through all these experiences, these uncertain experiences? He's able to see God in the middle of uncertainty. And at the very end of the book of Genesis, after their father dies, the brothers think, well, now he's going to get his revenge. He's been waiting on this for a long time. But that's where he says these famous words. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. I'm not a victim, I'm a player. And somehow Joseph was able to see that because, and because he was able to see that, he gives us really the perfect answer to the question, how do you follow God in the midst of uncertainty? And here's the answer to that question. It's simple, but it's not easy. Do you know how you follow God in the midst of uncertainty? Here's what Joseph did. Joseph did exactly what anybody in his circumstances would do who was confident that God was with him. And that's it. Do you know how to face the uncertainty that you're facing and follow God? You live and act and respond like a man or a woman who in your circumstances is confident that God is with you. Live with confidence that God is with you. To say, God, I'm going to assume that you are just as active, just as interested. You haven't left me. You haven't forsaken me. Today I'm going I'm to live as anyone in my circumstances was, would live who is confident that God is with me. And in time you look back and you can see the hand of God. And my responsibility every day is to get up and live as a person who's confident that God is with me. So I've got some great news for all of us today. Our Heavenly Father is the master of uncertainty. It's just what he does. He's been dealing with uncertainty and using uncertainty and leveraging our uncertainty and wringing good out of uncertainty since the day the world was created. I mean, he brought the world into existence from nothing and he took chaos and he brought together order. It's just what he does. And I believe he's saying to us, what he's saying to us is that if you'll just trust me, if you'll just trust me, if you'll just live your life confident that I'm with you, One day you will understand far more about it than you do right now, and you'll see things as I see them. I think he's reminding us, I am God, so trust me, follow me, pray, remember, seek, be connected, follow, and live as people who are confident that God is with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we are, uh, again, just grateful for stories like this. All through your word, we have these stories of people who are faithful to you in the midst of all kinds of uncertainty, uncertainty we can't even really identify with. But I pray that we would see the point that we'd see the lesson there for us, that we'd bring it into our lives, that in the uncertainty, the turbulence that we might be facing, that we can bring these principles into our lives. So out of Joseph's story, I pray that each of us would lean into a confidence that you are with us when, when you are quiet, when you seem to be inactive, when we aren't sure what the plan is and what you're doing, that we are confident that you are with us and that you're working behind the scenes for your purpose. I know the story that you are telling in our lives is so much bigger than us. Pray that we live every day with confidence that that's true. Father, as we stand to sing in a minute, we want to declare that you are our strength and our comfort. You are our steady hand. Your ways are higher and your plans are always good. In Jesus' name.